This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful we have your word to go to, that we know from the claims of your word that it, ha- it claims that this is, these words are breathed out by you, that you have overseen the whole process of the writing and inscripturation and preservation of your word, and that indeed there is nothing to indicate that and nothing has ever been discovered that breaks the claims of your word, that uh, there's nothing that shows that it's not accurate and not absolutely true. And so when we come to your word, we can have confidence that this is eternal truth, eternal truth that shines like a bright light deep within the crevices of our souls to expose that which we don't like to have exposed, to help us to understand how to live as you would have us to live, help us to see the areas wherein we need correction from your word, that we may learn to live a life and begin to experience in just a in just a pale reflection of eternity the abundant life that you have promised us. Now, Father, as we study your word, help us to grasp these concepts, to see how to implement them into our lives, that we may more consistently reflect the image of Christ in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If there's one word above all other words, one concept above all other concepts that people are just terribly confused about and have no real clear meaning of, in fact, if I were to give you a test and say, I want you to write down a definition, I doubt that I would get too many that were accurate and many, many that were very different. And that is define love. Love is a difficult term to define. Uh, years ago, when I was working on a doctrinal dictionary, uh, we had lots of uh, debates over how to define love. Even when we get into the Scripture, we don't really have a clear definition of love in the Scripture. We have descriptions of love, as in our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The attributes, the characteristics of love are there, but to define love per se is extremely difficult. If you go to the Oxford English Dictionary or Webster's Dictionary, you will discover that they do a fairly poor job of defining love, especially if you understand love from a biblical viewpoint. Because in Webster's, 
Love is defined initially as an emotion. But there's a problem with defining love as emotion because, as we all know, emotions are fleeting. Emotions are subject to all kinds of things that cause uh, many different fluctuations in our affections. We can just wake up somewhat uh, on the wrong side of the bed, as the idiom goes, and we're just kind of grumpy during the day. And so we may not have those sort of warm uh, feelings that are often associated with love. Uh, Often as one grows up and goes through those adolescent years and becomes attracted to a member of the opposite sex, you have funny little feelings, butterflies in your stomach, warm fuzzies, heart races and other things, and people identify that with love. But if you have been married for uh, any length of time, then you know that those kinds of feelings come and go because that is the nature of life. They are somewhat fleeting, as all emotions are. Not that there isn't a significant emotional dimension to love, but for love to have real significance, real staying power to truly understand love as the Bible teaches it, we have to go deeper than just emotion. And this is what we uh, pick up on in our study in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, for those of you who haven't been here maybe in a couple of weeks or you're visiting this morning, This is in the middle of a series on marriage related to our passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 to 21. In this section of Colossians, there there are four quick bullet commands to different, uh, different aspects of the congregation, wives, husbands, children, fathers. goes on after that to talk about Masters and slaves. This is foundational to to all society, foundational to the home, because in all of these, even with the master and the slave, what we're talking about is the dynamics within the home, the family, the third divine institution. In this passage, wives are addressed, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not Be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. As I pointed out in the previous lessons, when we get to this passage, especially since in both this passage and the parallel in Ephesians 5, that the wives are addressed first with that socially unacceptable, politically incorrect notion of submission, that I've taken time to look at that idea. And often it is misunderstood because too many of us have been indoctrinated in the false thinking of the culture around us. With the rise of feminism, going back to the rise of radical feminism in the 60s and before that, from that that, uh, group of individuals, they tended to, they, they set up false dichotomies. You're either this or you're that, whereas what the Bible presents is a, is a different way. 
from a human viewpoint standpoint, submission is may be derogatory and it may indicate uh, something where a person is just taken advantage of. And so that's all they can hear. But the Lord Jesus Christ submits to the will of the Father. And that's not something that's derogatory. That's not the Father taking advantage of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the Lord Jesus Christ becoming a doormat to the will of the Father. And yet I have talked to so many uh, folks over the years, and I've heard that objection from so many women, especially if they're married to a man who is not walking with the Lord, who is not walking in obedience. They say, well, should I just be a doormat to this guy? No, see, you, you've let the world define your, your, your alternatives. The Bible presents submission in a totally different way, but when your brain has been clouded and, and the categories have been defined by the world, then we have a hard time breaking out of those categories so that we can truly listen to what the Word of God has to say and what the Holy Spirit is teaching us. Submission is not inherently something that is disrespectful. It is not something that is in, in, in inherently derogatory, but it can be. Anything can be in a corrupt world, a world that is that has been corrupted by sin. But only as we study the Word and only under the uh, power of the Holy Spirit can we see a reversal of what has happened in a fallen world. And I've used this chart the last couple of times to talk about how things change. The first column talking about the original purposes that God had for the human race. That's the blue column. The green column in the middle summarizes the judgment that God announced in Genesis chapter 3. And the third column on, on the right, the purple column, how the, the damages of sin corruption can be reversed as we walk with the Lord. The horizontal category across the top is related to the woman, originally called Isha, because she came from the man Ish. And so we saw that the purpose of both the man and the woman was to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. And they were to be co-rulers. They were both created in the image and likeness of God. But the woman was created second for a reason, for a purpose. She is to assist the man. And that's not a negative or a derogatory concept, but because many, many times it is God who is described as the helper, the assistant, the one who helps us. Uh, they were given the task of multiplying and filling the earth so that in her judgment, she, because she violated the authority of her husband, now she's going to have a desire to rule, to dominate over him. There's a, these, these are just general, broad-stroke descriptions. Basically, the trend in the sin nature of the female is to wear the pants in the family. Now, the re- Redemption solution means that now there can be a restoration of that, to some degree, of that original, that original relationship in the garden. And the, the wife would submit to her husband. Now, we're going to deal with some different aspects of that as we go along so that you can clearly understand how the Bible understands that term. For the man, he was to be the leader in co-ruling over the creation. He was to be the leader. He was to guard, keep the garden. He had responsibilities in relation to labor, but it wasn't burdensome or toilsome. But when he sinned, 
his areas of responsibility were were impacted by sin so that the 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 wonderful labor that he performed with great joy before the fall now becomes toil he doesn't want to do it he 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 wants to give up the pants to the wife that's the general trend for the for the man is don't burden me with these responsibilities my shoulders aren't big enough you want it you can have it i'll watch football this afternoon be a couch potato every day so these are the natural uh natural sort of trends but the his command is to love his wife as christ loved the church have you ever wondered, as you read through the passages that we're looking at in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, why it is that the wife, the woman, is never commanded to love her husband? You ever thought about that? The wife's not commanded to love her husband. The reason is love, you're commanded in other places, we're all commanded as believers to love one another. There, uh, the wife is commanded to respect her husband. There are other aspects. But the wife as a responder, and I believe in the, the soul of the woman is designed to be a responder. The soul of the man is designed to be the initiator, leader. That the woman is, doesn't have a problem with loving the man. Her problem is related to that judgment. That judgment is you're going to want to be the boss. So that's why Ephesians 5 addresses the woman in terms of submission is because of what happened in terms of the judgment that she would desire to control the man. It's not, that's why there's no direction there, I mean, no command there for the wife to love the husband. It's not that she's not supposed to, but that wasn't the problem with the curse. So that these, these commands in Ephesians 5 are related to correcting specific area of problem from the fall. I'm pointing out several conclusions which I wish wish to go over again because they're so foundational. First of all, authority is as a principle is intrinsically good. We have a culture that thinks that authority is bad and some people who think that authority didn't come along until after sin came in, but we've seen that authority is inherent within the Godhead. The father is the one in authority. The son can do nothing without the permission of the father. And the Holy Spirit is is under the authority of the father and the son. So there is order within the Trinity, but it's perfect environment. It's a perfect relationship. No, no person in the Trinity is of lesser significance, lesser value than another. So you have total equality but you have distinctions in role. Now, in our culture, has got that all messed up, and we think that if you want to distinguish role, then you're saying that one person is less significant than another person. And that doesn't work on a baseball team, a football team. It doesn't work in a corporate environment, and doesn't work in the home. And whenever you have two people together, one's going to be the leader, one's going to not be the leader. That's just how it is. We have to have that uh, in order to accomplish tasks. My second principle was that authority was never designed as a solution to the chaos of sin because authority preceded sin. Authority provides order. I added this this morning. Authority provides order for excellence in execution of the objective. You have to have order. You have to have structure in order to achieve your goals and in order to accomplish what God's given you. We see that even in the Trinity. 
We've seen that subordination is not intrinsically bad, but reflects the need for order and mutual dependence. Fourth, we've seen that the belief, belief that submission implies inferiority is an assault on the very makeup of the Trinity, the incarnation of Christ, the cross, and therefore it is a direct assault on all biblical teaching. Uh, we've seen that the only solution begins at the cross, which removes the judgment of sin and provides a foundation for understanding and restoring our God-designed purposes and roles, and that it's only through the filling of the Spirit and the indwelling of the Word of God that we can overcome the deficits that come from living in a fallen world. So when we ask the question, why are wives commanded to submit and husbands commanded to love? It is because this is directly related to those deficits that come from the curse. But we're all commanded to love one another. Love is not optional. But we have to understand something about what love is. Before we get any further into discussing the specifics of husbands, uh, I mean, of wives submitting to your husbands, husbands loving your wives, we really have to understand this whole concept of love. And we have to understand the fact that as 21st century Americans, our culture has really done a number on the whole concept of love. If you go back to the 19th century, the concept of courtship and finding a mate for life was very, very different. For the, in the first case, you didn't have this concept of an adolescent, of a teenager, and pop culture until the early 20th century. There's debate over whether this occurs in the 20s or in the early 30s, but it's not until that period of time that you begin to create an adolescent culture. In, in all cultures of the world and all, all of history, for example, just the Jewish culture, you're a child until bar mitzvah, and then you're a man, you're an adult. There's no intermediate period of adolescence or those teenage years when you're neither a child nor an adult and you just sort of have this uh, Peter Pan sort of existence. Uh, that doesn't happen. So in, in throughout all of history uh, until the 20th century and in America, you don't have this kind of teenage thing. And uh, this whole idea of dating and going out and finding somebody and going out on a lot of different dates with a lot of different people really doesn't come into, into its own until the 20th century. In most cultures, in most of history, as hard as it is for us to understand, and some of you would just absolutely freak out at the concept, is the parents decided who would marry their child. And they did that because it was understood that the parents probably understood their children better than anybody else. And so they would pick the person. In other cases, you have, you have the arranged marriages or people just got married for, for whatever reason, but it was, they didn't go through this kind of courtship thing. Options in many cases in rural villages were pretty limited. And in New Testament times, a lot of those marriages were arranged. They didn't go out and find somebody and date for a year or two or three and decide that, well, that's not quite right. I'm going to go check out somebody else. They were, they were married, and in some cases, they never even saw the person they were going to marry until right before they got married. And so if you think about the fact that in many, many of the homes that Paul is addressing here, you have that as a background. When he says, wives, submit to your husbands, the wife isn't submitting to a husband she chose, like you chose yours. 
That makes it a lot more difficult, don't you think? And husbands, love your wives. Same thing. It's not a wife that you necessarily chose. So these commands are addressed to a culture that's somewhat different from ours, but there are commands that are transcultural. They are to be put into practice by anyone. It doesn't matter how you ended up with the person you've ended up with. Wives, you're to submit to your husband. Husbands, you're to love your, love your wife. It's not based on this idea of, of dating and finding somebody and falling in love. That's, that's not the background for understanding this in Scripture. Love was something that people grew into over time. I, I think there's a great line in the, the, the film, in the play Fiddler on the Roof, where Tevye's wife asked the question, well, do I love him? Do I love him? He asked her, do you love me? Do I love him? And she thinks about all the things that she's done. She said, yeah. You know, when she thinks about their relationship and what they do for each other and how they have sacrificed for one another, her conclusion is based on their relationship. Yeah, I love him. It's not based on what she feels like. And in American culture, we have confused the emotion with what love really is. Now, that does not mean that love doesn't have an emotional uh, dimension to it. But what it means is that love in and of itself is not to be identified with an emotion, which is why I wanted to go to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, so that we can understand love. Because when we understand the biblical concept of love, this is what really undergirds all of the spiritual life, and it really does undergird. It's the background for understanding these these commands in Ephesians 5 and Colossians uh, 3. Let me just quickly read through the passage. It's fairly short. Love suffers long. I'm going to read from the uh, New King James. Love su- suffers long. I think the Old King James said love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Some translations, love is not jealous. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked. It thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, Love never fails. That's the first part of the eighth verse. Now, this, again, is a description of love. And we need to think about this because if you are married or if you wish to be married or if you are uh, going to have children, love permeates all of this, and we need to think about this a little bit. The other day, as you know, my dad went to be with the Lord Thursday morning and preceding that, I had sent out an email about a week earlier, uh, and you'll hear this story again, trust me. Uh, I had sent out an email a week earlier to my cousins. We have a large family. There's four of us. I'm on one side. Three of them are on the other side. That's it. Um, To alert them as to where we were in my dad's condition. And the older of the three uh, siblings had a tough time last year. He, in the last three years, three years ago, my uncle 
died and my aunt died last year and he went through something of a of a depression and he i i sent an email to him and i said you know it's really different when you lose the second parent because it sort of reminds you of the loss of the first parent but you realize you're alone and he replied he said and he's not to my knowledge he's not a believer he said what you lose is there's no one left to love you unconditionally. And I thought, that was a great insight. I'm going to drive a truck through that later on, believe me. <laughs> but it's a great insight because the way it should be with our parents is that they love us unconditionally. And I know that there are people who have parents who did not did not do that, but that is the way it should be within the family, that there should be that modeling of unconditional love uh, by the parents, that they accept their children, uh, even despite their failures, everything else, they love them consistently all the time. That's what we're talking about as the foundation for all love. That's what this chapter is describing, this unconditional kind of love that comes from the throne of God the Father. So we begin in this first part by saying love suffers long. I love the old King James. It's long-suffering. The Greek word here is makrothemia. Makrothemia is from a compound word from makros, like macro, long, big, large, and themia uh, from uh, the word meaning anger. So literally it's sort of the idea it takes a long time to get angry. It therefore means to be patient or to be persistent in the face of opposition, uh, to persevere through, uh, through difficulty. It means it describes someone who is not easily angered or provoked within that relationship. Love suffers long. There, it's not going to easily react and yell and scream and blow up at the at the object of their love it's a recognition that the one you love is someone who is going to fail as christians we understand that we're all fallen we are all sinners we are all going to fail we are all going to be disappointed by others and we will all disappoint others because we are fallen creatures. And we need to have someone who loves us despite our failures. Now, does that mean you're just being permissive and they get off scot-free? Not necessarily. But think about the Father's love for us. How many times have you and I not had the boom lowered on us when we've sinned and when we failed? You know, the Father deals with us in grace. That doesn't mean we get away with it all the time. It simply means that he, he picks and chooses how to deal with us in terms of our failures and our flaws according to, uh, to who we are. But his love is stable. It doesn't change. It's not based on what we are. What's it based on? It's based on his character. Now, it can't be based on, when we love someone, it can't be based on our character because your character basically isn't any better than my character, and that's grounded on a sin nature that is, uh, that is often too self-absorbed and too arrogant to be the 
any kind of foundation for love. And so there has to be something more permanent to base our love on, and that means as Christians we have to understand the character of God. We, after all, we're in the image and likeness of God, and we're to reflect that. We're being renewed according to his image in our sanctification, so we have to understand his love, and that's a stable, unchanging, immutable love that is consistently faithful, never faithless. That what, that's, and that alone can bring real virtue to our concept of love. We need to love other people not because of who and what we are, but because who God is and what Christ did for us on the cross. That's the foundation. That's why we really have to understand that and how that uh, impacts our love. So the first thing is love is long-suffering. It's not easily provoked, easily angered. Uh, <clears throat> we see it picked up uh, in some passages one, I'm going to use one Old Testament, one New Testament passage, emphasizing the, this in the character of God and how the concept of long-suffering is related to his grace. Psalm 103.8, along with about five or six other psalms, makes the statement that the Lord is merciful and gracious. The emphasis there is on his unmerited favor toward us. We don't deserve any of it. He is slow to anger. There's that word. It's related to grace. If you are going to deal with your loved ones, with your spouse, with your children, with your parents in love, then that means that you have to be grace-oriented to them. That means that you are going to treat them not on the basis of who they are, what they've done, but on the basis of God's character. Again, it doesn't mean permissiveness because God clearly disciplines us. God clearly allows us to suffer consequences for our sin, but God never stops loving us. It is a love that is abounding in mercy. That's that last phrase. And what's so critical about that is, and I don't think that's a good translation in the New King James, it's the Hebrew word chesed which is difficult to translate into an English word. It means loyal love, faithful love. It it, it means loving kindness. But it is a word that is consistently applied to God and not to man, and it is tied to his faithfulness to the covenant. Now think about that in terms of marriage. When you think about that in terms of marriage, marriage is grounded upon a covenant a covenant that was sealed in the marriage ceremony. There's a contractual relationship between the husband and wife. There's a legal relationship there. And and that means that there may be times when you don't like the other person, but you need to be faithful to that covenant, loyal to that covenant. And there were stipulations within that covenant. And there were things that you said that you were uh, through, through sickness or health, through prosperity, adversity, uh, as long as you both shall live. Those were the conditions. So that's abounding in mercy is faithful, loyal love. That is demonstrated for us by God that he is always faithful to his, to his promises. In terms of the human realm, We have this same word used in James 5, 8, and 9, and I want you to notice the contrast between 5, 8 and 5, 9. 
The context is talking a little bit about the second, waiting for the second coming. It says, you also be patient, that is long-suffering, enduring the trials and tribulations of this life, yet still looking for the coming of the Lord. And then he says, do not grumble against one another. And apply that within the marriage relationship. Don't gripe and moan and complain about each other or to each other about each other. Uh, lest you be, what? Condemned. There is accountability there. Just because God has faithful love for us doesn't mean there's not accountability. And then the warning, behold, the judge is standing at the door. The context is second coming. When the Lord returns, there will be judgment. When the rapture occurs and we go to be with the Lord in the air, there will be judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. And that part of that evaluation judgment relates to our marriage, family, parenting, etc. Another way that the scriptures talk about long-suffering is tying it to forgiveness. Forgiveness, Peter asks the Lord, says, how many times if my brother sins against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? He says up to seven times. Rabbi said four times. Peter says up to seven times, and the Lord said no, up to 70 times seven. Now, that's hard to do. The response from human viewpoint is, do I just keep letting this guy punch me in the face? No, you don't. Okay, you you move out. You don't put yourself in harm's way. But that doesn't mean you don't forgive. Forgiveness doesn't mean you let somebody necessarily get away with something or that you put yourself in harm's way. Forgiveness means that you, at the very least, that you are not going to hold that against a person, that you are not going to constantly be bringing it up again, as if you're keeping record. We'll see that same terminology used in the passage describing love. But it doesn't mean that, that you're, you're, you just become a doormat. Or t- that, that the, too many times I get so impatient with people. That's not love. <laughs> because they, they, after you've been a pastor and after 30 or 40 years of hearing the same stupid, trivial objections because people haven't thought through anything, it gets a little tiring. Well, that just means I want to be a doormat. I've heard that a thousand times from people who don't ever think. You know, God forgave you how many times? Huh? Is he a doormat? You would never say that. But you're going to turn around and because your culture's told you that if a woman forgives her husband for whatever, then she's a doormat. See how silly we are? We just want to let the world tell us how to think. And we have to quit doing it. We're not going to get anywhere in spiritual growth if we don't. So forgiveness... That takes a little long suffering sometimes because it's, trust me, it's hard to deal with people who continuously uh, perform poorly for us. Let me just put it that way. Hurt us. It's tough. But we're to forgive them. Not because of us. We can't do it on our own. We can only do it through the grace of God. Other passages use the same word, Ephesians 4.2, describing the entire Christian life, that we are to, with all lowliness and gentleness, that is, with humility and gentleness. We'll see that word gentleness related to love again. Long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Oops, that's everybody, not just husbands love your wives, but bearing with one another. That means, you know, the ladies, you didn't get away with it. You still got to love it. Um, 
Colossians 1.11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Colossians 3.12, therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Kindness is also mentioned with regard to love. But here's the one I, I love, and I, I, I just came to understand this recently. In Galatians 5, uh, 5.14, we had the command to love one another. I mean, love your neighbors yourself, coming out of Leviticus. Then we have this statement in Galatians 5.22 and following, describing the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is singular. I've often wondered about that. The reason fruit is singular is there's only one fruit here. Contextually, it's love. And, and notice how I've punctuated that. The fruit of the Spirit is love, colon. And then we have the characteristics of love. We don't have different fruits of the Spirit. There's one fruit, it's love. It's characterized by joy, peace, long-suffering. That's mentioned. Kindness is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Goodness is mentioned in uh, 1 Corinthians um, 13, Faithfulness, the idea of loyalty, that's associated with love all the way through. Gentleness is tied to love, self-control. Against such there is no law. This is another description of the different facets of love. That's the, that's the command back in 514. That's the description here is how do we get to love? It's a fruit of the Spirit, and this is what it looks like. So love suffers long and is kind. That's the word Christoomi, uh, meaning to be good or to be kind, being kind to people. We live in a world that where there's no longer any civil, good, kind, civil discourse anymore, no respect for other people because there's no love. There's no character in people to be able to. Everybody's so self-absorbed that they just get angry and yell at each other all the time over different things. We've lost that civil, polite discourse. Uh, love is kind. This same word is used in the description of, of the love in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Uh, Colossians 3.12 also listed this as what we are to put on as a characteristic in the Christian life. But notice how it's tied to grace in Luke 6.35. Jesus is expanding on what he means by love, and he says you are to love your enemies, do good. There's that, that word describes love. In 1 Corinthians 13, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he, that is God, is kind. There's that word related to love. God is kind to the unthankful and evil. Gee, I wonder if all of us are kind to the ungrateful in our lives and the evil. We'll just move on beyond that. Love does not envy. Interesting word, zelao. It can mean positive passion for something or negative in the sense of jealousy or envy. That's what it is here, representing the illegitimate desire for what others have, and you want it because you think it's going to make you happy. And that's you're jealous, or you're jealous of a person. They're giving their attention to somebody else, and you want it all for yourself. That's not love. It's self-absorption. Love does not parade itself. And it is not puffed up. Both of those descriptions emphasize 
self-absorption and arrogance. Love does not boast. It doesn't brag on itself. Both of those come out of a mentality that is completely focused on one's own feelings and one's own approbation and what, what, uh, the, what you're getting out of the relationship. Verse 5 we read, love does not behave rudely. Love has good manners. One of the things I've noticed for years in any kind of marital counseling that I've done is it fundamentally breaks down to the fact that you didn't get pluses in kindergarten in terms of getting along with others. You just didn't. Or if you learned the lessons, they didn't last very long. Because most of the things that go wrong in marriages are just because you don't have good manners to the other person. You're not thinking highly of the other person. You're not treating them with respect. You're not letting them go first. Very basic, basic rules of life are, are broken down. And when we live in a culture today when so many people come out of broken homes and so few parents teach discipline and good manners and respect for others and respect for others' property to their children, it's no wonder marriages break down. It's a wonder that we have such a success rate that we do. Because they, they don't know the fundamentals of just how to talk to one another politely in conversation, how to avoid being self-absorbed all the time. These basic social skills just, just are lost. So love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. The word there for behaving rudely is a word simply meaning behaving improperly. You're not going to violate the norms and standards of just good basic, basic relationships. It doesn't seek its own. That is a word meaning simply to seek, to pursue, to strive after something. So when you are loving someone, it's not all about you. Now, I know that's really hard for us because it's not all about you. It's all about me, right? Oh, it's all about the Lord, period. Okay, it's not about us, but that's what happens in marriages. It's all about us. So love doesn't seek its own. You can't be... If you are focused on other people, your arrogance factor is going to almost completely uh, disappear. But when we're arrogant, we're easily provoked because anger is really when we perceive that what we, we're not going to get what we want. And when we don't get what we want, we get mad about it. And that sometimes that's a slow burn and sometimes it's a quick burn. But when you're easily provoked and there's flashpoints and you have as the psychologists today say, you have anger management issues. It's just because you're not getting your way. And when, it's, when you're having a lot of problems with anger, it's because you are 180 degrees opposite what the Bible teaches about love, and you're running as fast as you can away from it. And every time you hit that flashpoint, that's what's being exposed. And I'm stepping on everybody's toes here because this is happens with every single one of us. And we can only overcome this if we're walking by the Spirit. And then the last is thinking no evil. And this is the word legizomai. It's the same word that's used when James says count it all joy. It's an accounting term. It means to add things up. It's uh, the same basic word for imputation. So it has a range of meaning. It's related to the noun logos, logic, logical thinking. And so it often just means to think about things and as an accounting term, it basically is the idea you're not going to think or count up the evil that's going on in somebody's life. 
you're not going to be keeping a grocery list of all the times that they have failed and not done things the way you wanted them to. And people of both sexes do that. Verse 6 says, love does not rejoice in iniquity. Now, what that, that, that has application towards antinomianism, but basically what that is saying is that when somebody fails and somebody falls into sin, you're not saying, yeah, they finally got it. That's not there. Now, it's election political season, so we have to be careful with that one. It's a good time for application. But it rejoices in the truth. Now, we have to be careful because we can rejoice in the truth and become arrogant because we're right. The focus is on I'm right and you're wrong. And that just leads to more fragmentation of relationships. We rejoice in the truth, but we don't rejoice when somebody's sin brings it home to them. And then in conclusion, we have this statement that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The word bears all things means to cover or to endure. And the word, the last word for enduring is more persevering through all things. I want you to think about, depending on your situation, if you're a parent and you've had children, maybe you can understand this if you're just a child thinking about your parents, or if you've had a pet. Because uh, pets often have, uh, we, we forgive things. You know, they do things on that expensive oriental rug, and we love them anyway. We don't hold that against them. My wife never loved my dogs. <laughs> That's an old story. See, I had them from puppies. You love them, you put up with them, but... That's, that's the story. You put up with things. Think about the people you love and the things that they do that if, somebody, if, if it was somebody else, you'd haul off and slap them. You'd kick them out. You'd never talk to them again. But this is, this is somebody you love, and so you say, oh, well. And you will forgive them of it. You won't hold it against them. You put up with it because, well, you know, that's Bill or Joe or Susie or whoever, but that's just the way they are, and I'm going to love them anyway. That's what it means to bear all things. It doesn't mean to cover it up. It doesn't mean to ignore it. It means that you recognize that they're just a fallen, rotten, lousy sinner just like you are, and you're going to love them despite those flaws and failures. And so you're going to persevere. That goes back to the very first statement of makrothemia. Makrothemia, long-suffering patience, is often a synonym of hupomeno, meaning to endure. It's persevering and persisting in spite of the flaws, the failures, whatever. So, in conclusion, what is love? The way most Americans think of love is this big circle where it's affection, it's feelings, it's emotion, it's friendship. That's part of love, but that's not the core of love. If that's all there is, then when the hard times come, then it's real easy for somebody to vacate the premises. And having gone through some things with my dad in his last 12 years with Alzheimer's and lung cancer and watching things in my periphery with other, uh, other folks having to deal with, with parents and all of the, the things that have to be taken care of when you have a loved one who 
is getting to that point where they can't take care of their, their physical bodily functions very well, many other things, it is tempting for some people to say, I'm out of here. I firmly believe, and one thing I've, I've, been, I've, I've observed is one of the reasons that people need to stick together in marriage through 30 or 40 years and really learn to love each other is because when you get to that point, when you've got dementia, when you've got lung cancer, when you've got this or that or whatever the other thing is, or it's the other person, there's a relationship there that you can count on, that you know that person's not going to vacate the premises just because life's gotten a little rugged. Because you've built together and you've grown together and you've overcome difficulties and obstacles together so that when you get there, you're not going to say, that's ah, too much, I'm out of here. It's hard. If your love is based on emotion, it's really difficult to deal with those those end-of-life issues where you have to take care of somebody. The foundation is really the Greek word that's used here is agape. The friendship word, the word that's used for, for more of an emotional love is, is phileo. But this is what I call foundational love, agape. It's virtue. It's based on virtue. It's volitional. It's not based on a feeling. It's based on a choice related to responsibility. I I think a big word in love is loyalty, loyalty, respect. It's unconditional. It's focused on what is best for others, not what's best for me. And when you put them together, the core is agape love. Agape love does not exclude emotion, but it is not based on emotion. But when there is agape love there, then when that emotional dimension is there, it's much richer, it's much fuller, it's much more dynamic because it's grounded on virtue, it's grounded on that which truly lasts. And that's the kind of love that God has for us. And as believers, we are to reflect that not just in our marriages, not just in our homes, but in all of our relationships. We're to love our neighbor as ourself, and we're to love one another as Christ loved us. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to uh, think through this concept of love, to study through 1 Corinthians, to come to understand what real love is. It's not something that we often uh, truly, uh, truly accomplish in our lives, We need to grow. True love in this dimension is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a result of our spiritual growth. He produces it in us. But there's ways in which we uh, imitate it, the ways in which we demonstrate it uh, throughout our lives as we grow. And, Father, we all need to learn this. And in many ways we we all fail, and in many different ways we all fail. But we have to understand what the objective is. Father, we're thankful that you demonstrated your love for us through sending your son, Jesus Christ, that by looking at what you did, that when we were still enemies of you, enemies of the cross, you sent your son to die for us, that we might have everlasting life. Then all that is necessary to have eternal life is to simply believe, to trust, to accept that free gift of salvation of that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins, and that is the great greatest picture we'll ever have of what real love is. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.